Amen. God's been good to us already today. And I pray that those blessings will continue. As you turn in your Bible today, you can go to Judges chapter 15. We've almost come through the life of Samson. But today we're going to cover this critical chapter in Judges chapter 15. And I hope to preach to you on the subject of the broken Savior. It's time for a guilty confession, though. Growing up, as a young boy, I was a huge fan of professional wrestling. Now, I know what you're going to say because I've heard it my whole life. But don't you know, Derek, it's fake. To which I always reply, it's choreographed, not fake. There's a difference. I grew up in the golden era of wrestling, watching legends such as Hulk Hogan, Macho Man, Ric Flair, Andre the Giant, and of course, Sting. In the early 90s, Sting was a superstar in the WCW. Not only did he have that fancy face paint, but he had some awesome signature moves, the Scorpion Deathlock and the Stinger Splash. And when Sting came down from the rafters on that rope and he came down in the middle of the ring, man, the crowd went wild. Sting's real name, though, is Steve Borden. And a while back, I watched an interview with him. And like so many in the world of showbiz, Borden had the world by the tail. In the mid-90s, he'd already been a WCW champion, and he enjoyed the adoration of fans all over the world. But how many of you know you can have all the fame and the fortune and still be empty as a soap bubble? Borden, in fact, told an interviewer, he said this, I was making millions of dollars. Kids and adults loved me and cheered for me. Women were waiting for me in every city that I traveled to. But despite my dream of making it big, I was totally miserable. While touring the country as a wrestling star, Steve Borden turned to pain pills and to alcohol to ease the stress and to fact even go to sleep at night. He found it more and more difficult to lie to his wife about his many infidelities and his, his whole life reached a breaking point where he was hopelessly addicted to drugs his marriage was on the verge of divorce, so he, in a lonely hotel room, he picked up the phone and made a call that would change his life. Now, we'll hear more about Steve Borden's story as the message progresses, but as I thought about Judges 15 today, it's no surprise that little boys love Samson and wrestlers for the same reason. You ask any little boy who's been to Sunday school, they probably tell you their favorite Bible character besides Jesus is Samson. Both of them are larger than life personalities, but there's a dark side, isn't there? Underneath all the muscles, the fame, the riches, there are weak, sinful, broken men who are desperate for fulfillment and redemption. If Samson were alive today, I have no doubt he could have made a career as a pro wrestler, why we may even call him the Hebrew Hercules. Thus far as we've read about his life, Mr. Sunshine battled a lot of demons. As I have said, he was divinely called, but fatally flawed. And his story, as you read it, is filled with prideful chest thumping, sexual escapades, crude behavior, and yes, even fits of rage, which we're going to see today. Samson's greatest enemy was himself and that testosterone-driven ego. 
And yet, despite all of his sins, when you come to Hebrews 11, there he is in the hall of faith. And there's no doubt that God used this Old Testament hulk to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. I had a seminary professor who said this. He said that God can write straight with a crooked stick. Amen? I've always liked that. And Samson is proof of that because here in Judges 15, we're going to see him emerge as a one-man army. And finally, he begins to take on the role of God's called deliverer for Israel. But in this message, as we continue the study of Samson, I want you to notice the theme of the broken Savior. Okay, as you take notes today, notice with me, number one, in the first eight verses of this chapter, what I call Samson's vengeful feud. Samson's vengeful feud. Now, let me catch you up to speed with where we are as we begin this chapter. If you remember back to the last message, Samson had stormed off on his wedding day. He left his bride jilted at the altar. Now, it was a girl he wasn't supposed to marry in the first place. It was a Philistine. And he had made, previous to that, a foolish bet with the family of the bride, with the Philistines. And the bet was that they could not answer his riddle. Well, he underestimated the strong-arm tactics of the Philistines. And the Philistines ended up threatening the bride that they would kill her if she didn't coax the answer out of Samson. By the way, we're going to see that same thing repeat later on in Samson's story when he meets up with Delilah. But eventually, the bride spills the beans. Uh, that Samson tells her the answer, and she tells the Philistines. And as a result, when Samson finds out that he's been betrayed, he leaves her. Now, after a few months or a period of time, Samson decides it's time to patch things up with his bride but he finds out as he goes to visit her look at the first three verses here she's been given away to another man after some days at the time of wheat harvest Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat and he said I will go into my wife in the chamber but her father would not allow him to go in and her father said I really thought that you utterly hated her so I gave her to your companion is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do harm to them. Now today, when a guy wants to woo a girl, he uses chocolates or roses or diamond earrings. I guess it depends on how far in the hole he assumes he is. But in that same spirit, we see here Samson going back to visit the Philistine girl, and he takes a young goat. And all of you ladies will agree with me, that's surely going to win over her heart. <laughs> this was cultural, right? In the, the day, this was a gift. But when Samson finds out, as we read, that his woman has been given away, he is mad enough to eat bees. He declares total war on the Philistines. And in fact, I think... General William Tecumseh Sherman would have been proud of his scorched earth tactics because look what happens in verse 4 and 5 as we continue. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails and when he had set fire to the torches 
He let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Now, as you read that, I kind of chuckled. It's sort of a part boyish prank, part guerrilla warfare. And don't even begin to ask me how Samson round, rounded up 300 foxes and tied their tails together and put torches in the middle of that. I have no idea how he would have accomplished that. But we read here that the result is agricultural Armageddon, if you will. Single-handedly, Samson destroys the economy and the food supply of the Philistines. And even though he may have drawn first blood in this conflict, this feud, notice that the Philistines are quick to retaliate. We'll pick it up in verse 6. And the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. Now, so begins what you might call a vicious cycle of an eye for an eye. When the Philistines landed a, a dirty blow, Samson came back with an even stronger counterpunch. Now, as you read verse 8, that's kind of ambiguous when it says that he attacked them hip and thigh. But what we are meant to understand here is that this was a no-prisoner's bloodbath. Just as Samson mangled the lion and turned that old lion into meow mix in the previous chapter, here he tears the Philistines apart limb from limb. Now as you read through this, it's kind of like watching an old gangster movie, isn't it? It's kind of like watching Godfather or American Gangster. You just thought Michael Corleone or Frank Lucas were ruthless. You didn't want to cross those guys. Well, Samson is falling into that very same pattern. He is devolved into a brutal loose cannon. He may be spirit-empowered, but he is unstable as nitroglycerin. And so far as you read through Samson's life, starting all the way uh, in chapter 13 to the present, there really isn't much good we can say about Samson's life. He hasn't really fulfilled the calling that God had placed upon him even before the womb. His motivation for fighting the Philistines has been totally out of selfish revenge. And for most of his life... Samson has used his God-given strength to fight his own battles, not to deliver Israel, and not to bring glory to God. Now, I find this a good moment to press the pause button as we study this passage, because I think it teaches us two really important lessons about revenge. Because, remember, this is Samson's vengeful feud, and if you're flesh and blood like me... When somebody gives you the raw end of a deal or you feel the sting of injustice, your first instinct, your first knee-jerk reaction is revenge, isn't it? And that's what Samson was. Notice the two lessons here that this text points out. Revenge starts an unending cycle. I heard about a fellow who was a, a baggage handler at a major airport. And one day this fellow was doing his job and he was dealing with uh, an older lady, and this lady just ripped him up one side and down the other. I mean, she complained about everything. And for several minutes, this lady belittled this baggage handler. She criticized his every move. And surprisingly, 
the baggage handler, he didn't seem to be troubled at all by the woman's verbal abuse. Well, the lady went through customs. The next guy in line, he was coming up. He, he had witnessed all that. And he said, you know, I can't believe it. He said, I watched you take that tongue lashing. He said, I watched the whole scene. I want you to know I am so impressed by your character. How did you put up with such meanness? And the young man answered back. He said, sir, it's really easy. Her ticket says she's going to New York, but I'm sending her bags to China. <laughs> Be careful who you give criticism to. But if you've ever been on that end of the raw deal, if you've ever felt the sting of injustice, you know the knee-jerk reaction is to get even. And at first, vengeance may feel good. It satisfies that flesh sin desire that we have. But how many of you know it comes with an equal and opposite reaction? Sir Walter Scott, the eloquent Scottish wordsmith, observed this. He said, quote, Revenge is the sweetest morsel to the mouth that was ever cooked in hell. Wow, what a description. You see, when you seek to avenge the wrongs in life, what you end up doing is setting up an unending cycle of hurt and pain where you have to up the ante over the previous hurt in order to get payback. And if you desire that revenge, usually, my experience is, in fact, just watching my kids, <laughs> we don't have enough restraint within us to get justice. We always want to go overboard, don't we? That's the nature of revenge. It starts an unending cycle. And that's where Samson was in this feud with the Philistines. It became tit for tat. And you see the loss of life in the wake of that. Max Licato had an insightful paragraph in one of his books about this very thing. Notice what he said. He said, quote, Revenge is like cocaine for the emotions. Like cocaine, it demands increasingly larger and more frequent doses. Resentment, he said, is like cocaine in another way. Cocaine can kill the addict and unchecked anger overdoses the soul on toxic emotions. We all know somebody who's exhausting to be around because they're filled with toxic emotions. He concluded, he said, Hatred is the rabid dog that bites the owner. Revenge is the raging fire that consumes the arsonist. And bitterness is the trap that snares the hunter. Wow, what a thought. So revenge starts an unending cycle. But then there's something else here in this text I want you to see. It results in unintentional consequences. Notice what happens in the text, the Bible says in verse uh, 6 that the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Look at all that Samson's revenge has cost him. Because of his actions, his bride is dead. The father is dead. And there's always unforeseen collateral damage that comes along when you unleash the monster of revenge. You know, I'm told that the Chinese have a proverb. It goes like this. Before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. That's why the New Testament tells us when we get to Paul's letter to the Romans that we would do better to turn that injustice and that hurt over to God. Put it in God's hands. Remember what Romans 12, 19 says? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, when you decide to go down the track of vengeance, you know what? You assume the consequences that come from that. But when you put it in God's hands, God determines the outcome. And how many of you know God's a lot better at getting results? He's the only one who knows how to get good out of evil. And so we see 
Samson's vengeful feud. Now, hang on with me because I want you to see number two. I promise you, there is a bright spot in Samson's life. And it begins to happen in the next half of this chapter. I want you to see number two, Samson's victorious faith. Samson's victorious faith. So, after this feud settles down, we're going to read that Samson is forced to become almost like a caveman. He has to go in hiding out of future reprisals from the Philistines. You'd think it would be the other way around. But beneath all the muscles, all the locks of flowing hair, here's a flesh and blood man. His ongoing conflict, though, has stirred up a hornet's nest. His own people, the Israelites, begin to view him as more of a troublemaker than a deliverer. Notice what the text says, beginning again in verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come against us? And they said, We have come to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Notice the cycle of revenge. Then the 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Etom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. The unending cycle of vengeance, isn't it? And so they said to him, verse 12, We have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. Isn't that an interesting statement from a man who was literally Hercules? Don't hurt me. <laughs> then verse 13, They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. What a commentary this passage is about the sad state of Israel at this time. We read here that the men of, from the tribe of Judah, when they learned that the Philistines had come in, they wanted to capture Samson and offer to help the enemy to deliver Samson over to the Philistines. Now think about how crazy that is. Here's God's appointed man, God's appointed deliverer, and God's people want to hand him over to the enemy just to keep the peace. And yet they're being oppressed by the Philistines. Gary Enrig, he makes an insightful point in his book on Judges about this. Listen to what he says. He said, quote, When Judah betrays Samson, they volunteered to do the enemy's work. This vividly illustrates that it is possible for believers to get to the place where they prefer slavery to freedom where compromise is more comfortable than committing to the calling of God. Judah never had a better opportunity to be free from the Philistines, and yet they had a leader of amazing power and strength, they had an army of 3,000 men, and they had a God who promised to give them victory. If they had recognized God's man and rallied around him, they could have thrown off the enemy and be free. Now, let me just pause right there and ask you a question. How often do we act like Israel in our spiritual lives sometimes? We can get so comfortable with the oppression of sin. We can become one with the wicked culture around us such that we begin to accept it as the status quo. You say, preacher, I don't follow what you're saying. Look at the church. Look at how weak the church has become in America. Look at how fearful so many Christians have become. 
in our world. We don't want to get canceled. We don't want to say the wrong thing. We just want to go along to get along. We just want to be able to keep the peace. And friend, I'm telling you, the Bible says to be friends with the world is to be enmity with God. We, we begin to believe, as the Israelites did in this passage, well, things are just meant to be this way. We're, we're meant to be under the oppression of the Philistines. And we, we might as well hand over Samson. I mean, life was kind of better when he wasn't stirring things up so much. And we get into this mindset of going along to getting along. And yet, friend, we have one greater than Samson in our midst. His name is Jesus Christ. If we rallied behind Him, if we submitted to Him, if we pledged allegiance to Him, what might God do for you and for me and for this church? You see, it's, it's the same struggle that we see in our culture today. It's easy to get into the mentality where you say, well, I just give in to the darkness. The culture's so lost out there. They've lost their minds. I might as well just go along with whatever the government wants me to do. It's easier that way. And friend, I'm telling you, that's not the way that God has called us to live. We have to be people of faith over fear. People who will rally around uh, the, the power and the preaching of God and be filled by the Spirit of God and say, it doesn't matter what your agenda is in the world, I've got to serve my Lord and my God because He's given me a calling. He's given me a great commission. And I can't just hand it over, hand over the ground to the enemy. What I'm encouraged though is even though the church is compromised today, even though it is dark, even though these are uncertain times, and even though I don't like the direction of my country or some of the mandates that are being given by our government, here's what I can say. There is a faithful remnant of people who are hungry and thirsty for the true Word of God there are people with some backbone who will stand up and say, uh, no, I will not go along with the world and with the cancel culture and with the spirit of the age. I've got a battle to fight and I'm standing up for my people, for my God, and for my church. Amen? Amen? Now notice this. This is so interesting. Samson graciously surrenders to the prospect of death. But you know what? Who always gets the last say? God Almighty. He always gets the last word in, don't He? Notice what happens in verse 13. The Bible says this. And they, they said, No, we'll only bind you and give you into their hands. Verse 14. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he put it in his hand, and he took, took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. Remember, Samson loved riddles. Well, he's also an old-school rapper because he, he pins this poem here. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a 1,000 Men, tweet that out, right? As soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand and that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. Wow, what a story. So Samson, notice here, he's outnumbered, he's surrounded, he's bound, he thinks he's going to his death, but friend, he was exactly where God wanted him to be because God had a plan to use this broken Savior to strike down the enemy. 
if a devastating blow was delivered at just the right moment, and the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him at the moment when it looked like it was his final doom, it becomes the moment of Samson's great deliverance. And the Bible says that the victory was so great that Samson named the place where he slew those thousand Philistines Jawbone Hill. Wow, what a commentary. Now, as you imagine, fighting those thousand men would make you exhausted. Even Samson, this Hebrew Hercules. And the Bible says that at the end of this battle, when the dust settles and the enemy is stacked up ten high, that Samson prays. The first time in the Word of God where we read he prays. Look at what verse 18 says. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall of the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called Enhakore. It is to Lehi this day, as he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. Friends, say what you will about the flaws of Samson. Beneath the lust, the crudeness, the pride, the compromise, as I read these verses here, there was a bedrock of faith in this man's life. And in the end, as he prays, and as God revives his spirit with the water from the ground, here he wins a great victory, and he gives glory to his God. Here's one of the great lessons that I see emerge from this. Write this down. Whenever the Spirit of God starts to work, unbelievable victories can be accomplished by means of the most unlikely instruments. Let me say that again. Whenever the Spirit of God starts to work, unbelievable victories can be accomplished by means of the most unlikely instruments. Think about this. When Samson defeated the Philistines on that day, he had two things that set him apart. He had a jawbone of a donkey, and he had the Spirit of God. And yet, how much more do we have today, child of God? We have the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God. We have the people of God. And I think about that old hymn, Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown. You can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Friend, here's what I see about this passage. God doesn't need much to work with, does He? All we have to do is be completely surrendered to Him. And when we're yielded to the Lord, like Samson was here in this moment, a miraculous transformation took place in the life of this man. Uh, this man's life had been wrecked and wrecked by sinful choices up to this point. And friend, I'm telling you, that may be your testimony up to a certain place. They may point at your life just like they did at Samson's life in this moment when he's all bound up and he's walking into the camp of the Philistines. They might say about your life, Oh, this is it for that old sinner. Oh, he's all washed up. His, his life of sin has finally caught up to him. There's no coming back from this. But friend, the Spirit of God, the Bible says, breathe new life and supernatural strength into the deliverer. And the Bible says he overcame. Friend, you may be facing some of those challenges today. But let me tell you today, never discount what God can do in a single life 
we have greater access to the Holy Spirit than Samson did. Imagine what the Lord could do in you and in me if we yielded to the control of that Spirit. Why, with that same kind of Holy Spirit... We could overcome addiction. We could defeat depression. We could find the grace to forgive. We could walk in victory and defeat and drive back the darkness of this godless age. If, if one man can do it in Israel, imbued and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, what could God do if a church got serious and if you and me truly did get filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit? Why, we could turn this thing around. We could see a day of deliverance. We could drive back the darkness. We could see souls saved. We could see God do something in our age, the likes of which has never been experienced in my life or in your life. I'm believing God for it. I'm asking God to do something in my life and in your life. I'm asking God to use this church. Uh, you fill this altar. Put tears in our eyes back again. Uh, stoke the fires in our hearts once again. Return back to the Word of God and the Spirit of of God because the world is bankrupt there's no hope in it but friend I've got a savior I've got a second chance God I've got a message that says whosoever will I've got a God who pour, pour down grace upon grace such as the point your cup will be filled and you say Lord if you fill me one more time I don't think I'll be able to stand it he did it with Samson and he can do it for you because there's a whole lot of Samson in you and me Friend, listen to me. You may be facing some of those challenges today, but listen to me. The Spirit of God working in broken people is the whole purpose of the church on the earth. We're broken and messed up and crooked. We got the same problems just as Samson did, but the Holy Spirit worked in him to deliver a mighty victory. That's the point of the church. That's why God doesn't take you and me out of here. The moment we get saved and born again, He's got a purpose. He leaves you behind because God's purpose for the church is to work in the power of the Holy Spirit through broken people. You may be a mess, I may be a mess, but praise God, I'm God's mess. And God can take a mess and turn it into a miracle. Just look at what he did with Samson. And that's exactly what happened to Steve Borden, a.k.a. Sting, my childhood heroes. Borden was a lot like Samson. He's incredibly gifted athletically, but he was also plagued by his own sinful appetites. But everything turned around for Borden when he had that soul-searching encounter with God in a lonely hotel room in August of 98. Listen to what was told in this interview. All throughout Borden's superstar life as Sting, his brother had been faithfully planting gospel seeds in his heart. Praise God for that person who didn't give up praying for you. That faithful saint who, who would just drop a little gospel seed. Hey, I'd love to see you at church. Jesus loves you. The Bible says this. Steve Borden's brother did this year after year. He reinforced God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. And at his breaking point, who did he pick up and call? He picked up the phone and he called his brother. Isn't it good to have somebody to call upon? Borden prayed, Lord Jesus, there's no amount of money, no drug, no women, no man, no doctor, or nothing that's going to be able to keep me out of this dark despair. God, from this day forward, I want you to live my life 
You have to come and fix me, God. Come inside and live in me. No more lip service. Show me how to be a Christian. Show me how to be a man. Wow. Immediately, Steve Borden noticed a transformation in his life. The power of Christ instantly took away his desire for pills and alcohol. Can God do that? Amen. He recommitted to his marriage vows and asked his wife to forgive him. That's a miracle right there. But best of all, Borden's wife Sue was so impressed with the change that eventually he led her to the Lord. When Steve Borden shares his testimony today, here's what he said. Listen to this, and I quote. Instead of a 12-step program of healing, he said, I have a one-step program. His name is Jesus Christ. He saved my life and fixed me when nobody else could do it. Wow. You may wonder as you read this, this story in Judges 15, why is this in the Bible? This is such a strange story, isn't it? And as odd as this might sound, Samson is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his surrender and his betrayal and his deliverance through death, Samson is pointing us forward to an ultimate deliverer who would come on the scene one day and would deliver us from our sins. Look at this chart. I noticed six ways in which Samson pictured Jesus in this passage. Notice, Samson was rejected by his countrymen. Jesus was rejected by Israel. He came into his own and his own received him not, John 1.11 says. Samson was arrested by his own people and handed over to the Gentiles. Jesus, also arrested by his own people, handed over to the Gentiles, the Romans, according to Acts 4.27. Samson did not resist his own people when they betrayed him. And Jesus, the Bible said, said not a word when they attacked him. They reviled, he did not revile in return. 1 Peter 2.22 Notice this, Samson used an instrument of death, an old jawbone, on a hill to bring deliverance. Jesus used an instrument of death, the cross, on a hill named Calvary to bring deliverance to you and to me from our oppression. Our sin that was over our lives. Notice this. The Bible says that Samson broke the cords, the new ropes that were wrapped around him. And Jesus, the Bible says in His resurrection, broke the cords of death. The pangs of death were loosened, Peter said in Acts 2 and verse 24. And the Bible says that Samson ruled over the people for 20 years. He put the Philistines on the retreat. There's one greater than Samson. I'm here today to tell you his name is Jesus. And because of his victorious resurrection from the dead, he defeated the enemy. And the enemy is in retreat because of his victory. This, this is in the Bible because it's pointing us to Jesus. And also this. Samson is the last guy you would ever expect to be a deliverer of Israel. I mean, look at how much sin was in his life. And yet, it's here to encourage you and me. Because if we're honest, there's a lot of Samson in Derek McCarson. But yet, the Holy Spirit transformed him. And when we are surrendered and controlled by the Spirit of God, it makes a difference. And through that transformation, people can see Christ working in and through us. Though we're broken, though we're weak, though we're sinful, that's the kind of folk that God uses to deliver a nation. Hey, I'm signed up for another tour of duty. I say, Lord, use me. Lord, fill me. Lord, break me. God, I'm yours. 
Because you know what? There is no plan B. It's you and me, the Spirit of God, and the truth that we can extract from that Bible right there. There is no plan B if there's going to be hope in this country, hope in your school, hope in your family, to turn back the darkness and see a day of deliverance. I'm praying that God, I'm so burdened over the state of these United States. I've wrestled with God over this. I've prayed. I have a broken heart for what's going on in our nation. I have a broken heart for the families, for the people that are riddled by drug addiction and by divorce and all the problems that we see. But you know what? It don't have to be that way. It's a good God and a gracious God and a powerful God. Amen. And we could see Him do something in your life, in your family, in your home, and in this church that would blow our hair back. I'm believing God for it. As our musicians come and as we have this time of invitation, I'm going to be down here praying. You know why? Because the hour is urgent. Because the need is great. And I sense that we're entering a, a season in the life of America where if God's people don't really get serious, we're going to go too far. We're going to pass beyond the point of no return. The hour is urgent. The need is great. Will you join me in prayer? We ask God to forgive you of your sin. We ask God to use you, your job and your family, wherever He's called you. Because we need a Samson-like deliverance today, don't we?